On air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, the ultimate in recycling, a used shearing shed. In the past, these properties have run sheep on them. Uh, we are now uh, solely cattle and uh, each of the properties have, has got a shearing shed on them and they really are now surplus to our, our needs. And the champion Tasmanian Kelpie winning the National Cobber Challenge. Yeah, I bred Earl, so I bred him out of my two best dogs and unfortunately we don't have his mother anymore, but yeah, he's real good. He, yeah, he's, um, he trained off my best dog, which is his father, so that's probably an advantage to him. Earl the Kelpie coming up later in the program, the champion working dog. And anyone needing a shearing shed? The East Coast farmer looking to relocate some sheds from her property at St Mary's. That story as well. G'day, Tony Briscoe with you on this Monday where we do take the shearing shed story a little further. We speak to a man who constructs the sheds and who says there's a waiting list as they're so busy at the moment. Also coming up in just a moment, the breakdown in talks over the weekend of the European free trade deal. Not good enough for Australian farmers. And a new report says farmers can expect fertiliser prices to flatline or fall in the next few months. Some good news there after the last couple of years of very high prices. We check the weather as well with the Bureau, as normal. A couple of fronts hitting the state at the moment. And take your thoughts on 0438 922 936. 0438 922 936 is that number. First up today, trade talks between Australia and the European Union have once again failed. After five years of negotiations, Trade Minister Don Farrell has been holding the final round of negotiations with his EU counterpart on the sidelines of the G7 Trade Minister's meeting in Osaka in Japan. Australia wants greater access to the lucrative but notoriously protectionist market, but the EU returned with the same offer rejected earlier this year. The EU wants to impose new farming practices on Australian producers and ban Australia from using product names including Parmesan, Mozzarella, Feta and Prosecco. President of the National Farmers Federation, David Yohinki, tells Thomas Oriti he's still hopeful an agreement can be reached down the track. Well, for starters, we are supporting um, the Minister's efforts in trying to come to a conclusion of these negotiations, noting that they have been extremely difficult to date. And at the moment, we're not going with the narrative that um, all hope has been lost in this round at the moment. We are understanding that there's still meetings being held, of which we've made it very clear of what our asks are around agriculture and noting that there hasn't been a lot of movement. But once again, we've been in constant contact with both Minister Farrell's staff um, and directly with himself. And we're supporting his current stance and how he's working with industry to try to get an outcome. You mentioned there, you've made it very clear what our asks are. Just in in brief, what would you like to see happen as part of this deal? Um, What we're not seeing so far is a commercially uh, attractive deal for agriculture to get our agricultural products into what is a very large marketplace for us. And so a marketplace that we already have very strong um, trading ties with. So when we talk specifically, it is around getting better access for beef, getting better access for sugar and getting better access for our cotton. Um, and overall, there is obviously other concerns around, as mentioned at the start, how we trade with the EU and what some of the regulations and asks that they have upon mm. Australian agriculture. Okay, so let's say, and you said there you, you, there are still some meetings going on, your hopeful negotiations will continue, but let's say this is dead in the water and, and the negotiations have failed. How will that affect farmers around the country? Well, once again, we're, we're not running with that at the moment. We're I, I know you're not running with that line, but I know you're not running with that line, but surely you've, you've sort of mapped what could happen here if the negotiations fail. Potentially, these are hypotheticals, sure, but how would that affect farmers around the country if they do fail? Well, um, what we're going to be asked is that the conversations are adjourned and we can, can still continue to have those conversations. And obviously, if we're not getting good access to these markets, um, we'd prefer a no deal than a deal. So 
if the talks are heading in the direction that they are, we would rather reset, recalibrate and uh, ensure that we can still continue to do the trade that we have got with the, the EU and the current conditions and also make sure that um, any other trade agreements that are on the on the horizon also are beneficial for agriculture. So for us, yes, it will be a missed opportunity um, if, we, if we can't secure a better deal. But once again, um, Australian agriculture has many markets. Um, we would like to be participating in the EU market, but we're not going to do it at any cost. When we look at why it's been so difficult to agree to a trade deal, I mean, one of the issues is naming rights, right? I mean, the EU is not budging on these naming rights. I mentioned a few of them in the introduction, Prosecco, Feta, Mozzarella, Parmesan. Why is that such a crucial issue? How much would losing those naming rights cost Australian farmers, David? Well, there's a few um, parts to unpack there. First of all, it is the descriptor. When you go to the supermarket and ask for feta, everybody knows what feta is, everyone understands what it is, and everyone mm. understands its characteristics. So to replace that with an Australian-based name would take a huge undertaking for just both education in the Australian market, let alone then how we would introduce that to our other markets overseas. And secondly, in Australia, we are a very um, inclusive culture. We, we have these names because we've had generations of... Um, immigrants come to Australia and bring their their flavours, their tastes with them, and we feel that it would be a loss if we were to just give those those naming rights up, those those um, descriptor names, without having some meaningful concessions back. So for us, we're not interested in in changing those names. Um, obviously, uh, everything is needs to be negotiated and worked through but we've got a sense that we we are a part of those names as well our producers are a part of those names and we have some wonderful product here that can only be described very similar to those um, traditional locations or those traditional ways of making these products. Yeah, I keep thinking, I mean, our supermarket shelves would certainly look very different, wouldn't they? I keep thinking what other name we could give some, something like feta that's, that's not feta. So as you say, it would be a very expensive thing to rebrand and relabel and, and re-educate consumers. But this trade deal as well, you're saying it's very important. It could also help to diversify away from China, which has used economic coercion against Australia for a few years now. I mean, if that deal is so important, is the, the naming issue something that you would be willing to negotiate and, and reconsider or is that um, something that you don't want to touch? Really, we've got to see what's on the table and we've made it clear that um, with the Minister and we're supporting his efforts at the moment that we will um, support him as long as he makes sure he gets a good deal for us and that, that's that's basically where we're at. And yeah. when it comes to geographical indicators or these descriptive names, um, we have seen some industries have to change, but if that is to occur, we, we need massive support. And unfortunately, um, when we talk about trade and we talk about industries such as dairy, um, the EU isn't very interested in how um, our dairy industry operates as far as um, wanting to give us more access because they are very large dairy producer themselves. So what we need to do is both have a dis discussion around what we're willing to negotiate off the table for what we we've put on the table for us. And for us at the moment as a whole, um, we're team agriculture. We're looking to get the best deal we can for everybody. Um, and we're not sure exactly where that lands at the moment. And once again, we still believe those conversations are still have a chance, but um, we still want to have negotiations to continue regardless of the outcome. The new president of the National Farmers Federation, David Yohinki, hitting the ground running, speaking there to Thomas Ariti about the breakdown of trade talks between Australia and the European Union. Coming up in just a moment on the Country Hour, we'll talk about the, the used shearing shed, which needs recycling. Hi, it's Lisa Miller. And I'm Nate Byrne from News Breakfast on ABC TV. We're flying into town for Open House Hobart. We'll be swinging open the doors at the HQ of ABC in Tassie. Have a wander around the ABC Centre. Meet your favourite personalities. And nobody wants to miss out on seeing Big Ted and Jemima. Come along, Sunday, November 12. It's totally free, but bookings are essential. Online at abc.net.au forward slash host. See you there. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. One large beef cattle producer on Tasmania's east coast is taking recycling to a new level when it comes to an unwanted shed 
on the St Mary's property, a couple of sheds actually. Cattle farmer Alison Napier says the infrastructure could be useful for other purposes on other Tasmanian farms. I'm at the very eastern end of Fingal Valley and the property uh, sort of runs from St Mary's back along the valley towards Fingal. We have got 5,500 hectares here and um, we are a, a beef operation and currently running close to 5,000 ahead of of cattle on the farm. Now, you've got a little unique problem on... Well, it might not be a problem, but um, it's something you don't want on the farm and you want to get rid of it. Tell us the story. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's not a problem, Tony, that's for sure, but we do, in the past, these properties uh, have, been, have run sheep on them. Uh, we are now uh, solely cattle and uh, each of the properties have has got a shearing shed on them and they really are now surplus to our our needs those sheds are really well built and have got a lot of very good material in them still and um, we just think that it would be a much better could be put to much better use by someone else and from our point of view it's just a pity to see that material wasted or even worse because it's a little bit hard to justify spending money on maintenance of something that you can't see that you're ever going to use again, you know, to watch them deteriorate over time and then those materials become sort of useless. So we think it, it would be a great opportunity to put them on the market and see whether someone else uh, is interested in the materials from them and, yeah, use them. So there's actually three sheds that we've got. We've uh, put with Nutrien to, uh, to sell. Okay, now I'm looking at a photo of uh, one of the big sheds. It's very substantial and, uh, it's a great-looking structure and, and I, I suppose you'd want somebody to come and take it away and then maybe put it back up on their property. Is that the uh, the end result you want? Uh, Tony, I don't think it's really... I think it's up to the person that may be interested to see what they, what they want to do with the materials. There's probably any number of things that could they could use the materials for you know I'm, I'm not particular about what someone might want to do with the materials and put it up certainly there is the opportunity to put it up as a shed one of the sheds is a substantial shearing shed it was a six stand shearing shed and has been really well built and that's on the Cullenswood property and has had a lot of you know, high quality wool sheep go through that shed and has, has seen a lot of wool cut uh, in that shed. So, yeah, maybe someone will want to use them for shearing sheds. Maybe people will have other ideas on what they could repurpose the materials for. Alison, do you know how old the uh, big shearing shed at Cullenswood is? Good question, Tony. I'm not 100% sure. It's a sawtooth design and I think that was uh, pretty popular in the 80s. So that's that's my guess, Tony. Now, people might be asking the question, you say you're into beef cattle, but what about if you change your mind in five years and uh, wool, wool becomes more popular or sheep meat? <laughs> uh, no, well, we certainly, we have a pretty high rainfall here and cattle are suited to our environment and it is suited to what we do. It's not, this is not a, a decision we're just doing for the next couple of years. This is something that we've thought about and we know suits us, our business and our environment is cattle only. Now, the beef market's been pretty tough over the, the last uh, few months, especially. How are you travelling? Have you got special contracts in place that um, enable you to be going okay with it? Tony, was, yeah, I mean, obviously there's been a correction in the market and uh, there's been a significant change from where we were, you know, one, two years ago. I think that we we all knew that uh, the prices we were experiencing previously were probably unsustainable and as, as much as we enjoyed them, we knew that there'd be a correction in the market uh, at some point. Our business is a business that's here for the long haul and we certainly have things in place to make sure that uh, we can navigate these periods where, you know, markets fluctuate. It's part of what we do, which is working in an unpredictable environment and markets are one of those things that's unpredictable and we, we need to have a business that's robust and can navigate that period of time that may not be quite as favourable. We have 1,500 breeders on 
and they've got calves at foot. We also have um, our yearlings that the female portion of that class will be replacement heifers and the steers will all be starting to turn off now and enter into the feedlot, TAS feedlot, around that 450 to 500 kilo mark. Um, as well as my own cattle on, we've got approximately a thousand head of adjustment dairy dairy adjustment on as well, which we carry for a fifteen month uh, period. We take them on at approximately one hundred and fifty kilos, and take them through to just prior to calving at around four hundred and fifty kilos, and then return them to their dairies ready to calve. So it's a huge operation. How do you handle it all? Have you? Got, you must have some good staff working with you. Uh, I have some great staff, Tony. Um, I have a pretty young and enthusiastic team. I've got some really bright staff that uh, are motivated to, you know, really excel in grazing and livestock management. But yeah, we. We work pretty well together and we all really love what we do and where we work. And conditions, you say it's a pretty good rainfall area. What uh, what do the properties look like? You've got plenty of, plenty of feed for the cattle? We're actually, it's really an interesting season, uh, Tony. So we have a quite a significant uh, variation in our rainfall from one end of the property to the other. Year to date, uh, we're sitting on about 500, well, it's 508 mils year to date, uh, which is very low. Rainfall. This time, just to put it in perspective, October last year, for the month of October, we had more rain than we've had all year. So last October, we had 544 mils of rain for the month, and we've had 508 mils for the year. So we are incredibly dry this year. However, we have come out of a particularly wet period, and there was really good moisture in the soil. So we have been we have been able to grow some feed in front of us for the spring it we are i will say we are just ticking along here at the moment for spring but you know things will change fairly soon unless we get some rain and you'll have to bring feed in you're saying uh we don't often feed tony it has to be a pretty uh pretty severe dry time for us to feed we have worked pretty hard with our grazing and still are to be growing a wedge of feed in front of us while we still have some growth at the moment. And we we manage our grazing pretty tightly and are working already on our graze plans through the summer to make sure that we have the feed required and know how we will manage our livestock to get them through. At this point, no, we're not anticipating we'll need to feed, but let's see what happens sort of through in February, March. St Mary's beef farmer Alison Napier talking about the conditions at the moment and also the rather large sheds on the property she wants to recycle to other farmers. Well, talking about sheds, demand for new wool sheds has skyrocketed. Specialist wool shed builders are booked up for months in advance with some producers waiting even longer to get a new shed up. Karen Hunt found Greg Hendricks, a former shearer turned wool shed builder from Tintinara in South Australia, on site at his current project. She asked about the demand he's been experiencing. My own workload has always been two years ahead, purely because I have a niche market in the state. But some of the bigger companies now, the Victorian companies, the New South Wales companies, have certainly encroached in South Australia and and need to be here because the workload at the moment, the way the taxation stimulus money was and the sheep prices, no one could keep up with the work. Well, I guess that is the next big question with the uh, drop in sheep prices. Have you noticed anybody at this stage starting to think twice about putting up a new shearing shed? Not at this stage. Yeah, going forward as far as July, our clients are still confident in their plan for going ahead going forward hoping there's a turnaround this is a very large shed that you're building here at tilopia did you say 12 stand yes uh 12 stand nearly 2,000 square meters they'll have 2200 sheep on grading we've got a 24 person lunchroom toilets storage facility for probably three to four hundred bales so yeah, it's a huge project i'm guessing that this isn't the normal type shearing shed that you would be constructing what would be the average shearing shed three to five i seem to be building a lot more fives rather than fours the raised boards are definitely the way to go now you wouldn't see very many that aren't raised boards you wouldn't see a lot 
I've probably only built four sheds that aren't curved raised boards in 19 years that I've been doing this now. And the amenities you were describing earlier, have they become more important now to attract and keep the staff? Essential. Like I say, I was short for 25 years and and more and more women were coming into our industry and it was disgusting, for want of another word, that there was no toilet, let alone for men, but for women. And it's a pretty basic requirement, isn't it? Has it just been tax write-offs and the price of sheep that have driven the demand for new shearing sheds or is it just that the old ones are too old? Both, I think, yeah. You go through Western Victoria and the, the way they are built up on stumps like a house frame, you can't shear in them anymore, you know. They've been patched up, they've, the white ants have been through them, they've been patched up again and a lot of it is replacement, for sure, or refurbishment because it still is out there. The bloke that's got a 1,000 sheep can't afford to put up a $200,000 shearing shed because it's just not viable, is it? Do you see the end of this rise in demand? Is it going to flatten out? I mean, you can only build one shearing shed on a yeah. property. One of the biggest things now, especially with the next generation, the 30-something blokes that Dad's finally given them the reins, sheepyard covers. You've got to have one, pretty much. They've become very popular. It's just comfort. You're working people. You have to do it. Has the rising cost of materials played a part in people's thinking about whether or not to build a new shearing shed? I thought it would have, but people make those plans and they make those commitments. But COVID and what came afterward, that was the building industry. Look, we saw price rises of 40% in three years. I would say there'll be a few people now that have to stop and think. This is probably the, the biggest shed that you've ever built, you said. What's the smallest? One stands. And, and I, <laughs> Do you I, actually I, build a one yeah, stand yeah, shed? I built a one stand shearing shed for a gentleman down at Millicent who was just, you know, he's a hobby farmer. You know, we stuck it pretty much in a 30 foot by 30 foot corner of his shed and he had his one stand shearing shed. Greg Kendricks. For those who work in the wool industry, newer shearing sheds have a number of advantages, as Richard Rees, a shearing contractor from Mount Gambier, explains. Going into a new wool shed, they know that it's safe, it's designed well, there could be a, a wool lunchroom, a toilet, shower, everything, it's, everything's been improved. Is it a far cry from some of the wool sheds that you go into that are perhaps a little bit older? Well, yes, I'd say yes. There is a difference between the good ones and the bad ones. As a contractor, we've, it's our responsibility to make sure that the sheds are up to standard. Well, we put out a, a bit of a list what needs fixing or what not to try and help. Have you ever refused to go into a shed because it was unsafe? Yes, we have, yes. But you've got to look after your workers. If it's not safe, well, they can't go. Does it make it easier to find and retain staff if they know that they're going to be working in a place that is new or near new? Oh, that's that's for sure. If they know that this work environment's safe, the woolshed's up standard, they've got new evos, the catching pen doors are all good, everything like that, for sure. It's just a happy workplace, so you don't want to be going into a woolshed where the roof's leaking or you can fall through the floorboards or you've got old machines, what haven't been um, serviced and it just puts a damper straight away. Richard Reese, a shearer, talking to Karen Hunt there and also we heard from Greg Hendricks, a former shearer turned woolshed builder who's uh, very, very busy at the moment with new shearing sheds. Now, if you were listening last Thursday on the Country Hour, you would have heard that Arc Energy had withdrawn its proposal for a wind farm near Stanley in the state's northwest. The plan was to install 12 turbines on Western Plains Farm, but the company sent out a statement to say it had decided to focus on bigger projects. The General Manager of Development in Tasmania for Arc Energy, Donna Bolton, spoke to Leon Compton this morning. Oh, we're constantly um, scan- scanning the horizon, looking at what we're doing at our resourcing um, and there just came a point when we realised that actually this wind farm was not fitting in well with our portfolio. And I think you probably know that um, Epuron originally um, was developing this wind farm and Arc Energy acquired Epuron. Um, now, Epuron was um, a kind of medium-sized Australian-owned company set up by two energy industry insiders and they would do um, a range of different scales of projects. Their first one was 30 megawatts. This one, obviously, at 50, was kind of in that kind of zone. But um, Arc Energy has a remit to decarbonise, and it's, um, it's looking at much bigger projects. 
Um, and so constantly scanning the horizon, looking around at what we were doing, where our resources were, we realised that this simply didn't fit with our portfolio. Donna Bolton's our guest this morning, General Manager of Development in Tasmania for Arc Energy. Uh, if you were following the news, you would have heard that they've announced that they're pulling out of plans for a wind farm. It was 12 turbines, I think, from memory, uh, that yes. was to be located west of Stanley. Donna Bolton, part of what was happening there was a large community campaign, or let's call it a significant community campaign, who felt like the wind farm, its visibility in terms of uh, siding and also potentially noise was too much for that location. What was the lesson for your company around community consultation on this? Well, we do do a lot of consultation on our projects and this was no exception. I suppose um, it, it, it certainly the impression given is that um, it was a blanket no from the community, but that's not the impression that we were given. Um, my experience is that opponents create a group, but supporters um, seldom do. Supporters and people who are neutral about a project tend to speak to us as individuals rather than as members of a group. And that gives us more exposure to people who are either indifferent or, in fact, who support the project because we do understand the individual issues that they raise. Whereas we speak generally where we can to um, representatives of a group. So we don't know what the individuals all think and we only ever kind of have contact with a small number of people. So it can be hard to know how many people are involved. But in this particular um, project, I think um, we, we learned something from every project. And for this one, um, it's really that at that point of change from Epuron to Arc Energy, you know, we kind of um, looked at it then and thought it, it's it may be too small, but let's carry on. Um, but of course it was. We're not. We're doing gigawatt size, which is a thousand megawatts in other states, and it's um, it's not exactly the same resource. But it's you know, <laughs> you still need to work through all of the issues. And are you working through them for a thousand megawatts, or are you working through it for fifty? And and that's the fundamental issue. Arc Energy General Manager of Development for Tasmania, Donna Bolton, talking there to Leon Compton. Arc Energy still has plans for three projects, 47 turbines at St Patrick's Plains in the Central Highlands, up to uh, 48 turbines at Hampshire near Burnie, and up to 80 turbines at Guildford near Waratah. Still to come on the country hour, Earl, the champion Tasmanian dog. Also, a good outlook for fertiliser prices, and we'll check the latest on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Ellie Ward. Thanks, Tony. The disappearance of a Tasmanian man who went missing on a walk with his wife six years ago is now the subject of a criminal investigation. 66-year-old Launceston man Bruce Fairfax was walking the Duck Hole Lake track at Strathblane in Tasmania's south with his wife Louise and dog Tessa when he disappeared in dense bushland in October 2017. The area around a key hospital in Gaza has reportedly been hit by Israeli airstrikes. More than 14,000 civilians are sheltering inside. The US says it's reminded Israel it must distinguish between Hamas and innocent Palestinians. Reports from Iran say eight people have been arrested at the funeral of a teenager who died after an alleged confrontation with the morality police. The 16-year-old girl fell into a coma nearly a month ago. Human rights groups say she was hurt in a confrontation with officers on the Tehran Metro who accused her of not covering her hair. And the Friendly Beaches camping area in the Freysenay National Park will be closed for summer after a bushfire caused extensive damage. The Parks and Wildlife Service says last month blaze severely damaged infrastructure and to ensure public safety, the campground and day use area will be closed for the summer. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Jenny Horvat joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Jenny. Good afternoon, Tony. Uh, rainfall figures. Let's have a look at uh, what we've got first up. Yeah, so since, um, so up till 9am, we've seen 16.6 millimetres at um, Henty Canal, um, 12.6 millimetres at Mount Reed, and we've had those showers moving across the state. They're now pushing into the um, into the northeastern parts, and since 9am, we've picked up about 8 millimetres at Mount Barrow and about 6 millimetres at Mount Arthur Summit. So still some more showers around there, Tony. And you'll be pleased to know, Jenny, that we've now got a rain gauge at the back of uh, the ABC building here in Hobart and it had five millimetres of rain in it this morning. 
There you go. So yeah, no one would have read that over the weekend, would they? We had a had a little bit come through on the Saturday into into Sunday. Saturday night rainfall, I reckon that yes. was. But yeah, five yes. mils. So okay, um, still windy. Is that going to disappear? The wind. Yeah, look, it's a little bit hit and miss with the wind. So we've got the double feature moving through. So it's now sort of starting to move into the north, um, northeast. But then we've got this next one that's pushing up from the from the southwest. So we're going to see that pushing into those western coasts um, later this evening and more broadly across the state overnight. So still a little bit of wind until we get that next one moving through and then things should start to settle down um, tomorrow and midweek. Looking at the second front pushing through, though, now it looks like there's some thunderstorms embedded within that so we could see those pushing up onto our western and far northwestern parts um, this evening and they could be a little bit gusty but we are expecting them to be relatively isolated with that thunderstorm risk clearing very quickly on Tuesday um, morning there just clipping the, the far northeastern coastal waters and the Ferno Islands um, just as that front just continues to move away um, but following that maybe a little bit of shower activity lingering on the on the Tuesday um, mostly around the western south and the Bass Strait Islands, but light showers elsewhere. But we will see that contracting to western parts um, and the far south during Tuesday evening. Like I mentioned, could be the early morning thunderstorms, but we are looking at a bit of a cold outbreak. So tonight we could see some small hail around the far west and south and again early in the morning on Tuesday as well. And we'll see our snowfalls lowering to around um, 700 metres by early Tuesday. But they'll start to rise relatively quickly during the day as things start to ease up. And after that, are we going to get some warmer, settled weather? A little bit more settled and just a little bit more warmth, nothing too warm. We've got that high-pressure system south of um, SA, still maintaining a bit of a westerly flow, so a little bit of light um, shower activity about the west on Wednesday and Thursday, not out of the question, but it should be pretty dry elsewhere. A little bit of uncertainty um, as we head into the weekend. Looks like there's a front on Friday, so more broadly some rainfall through there, and then, yeah, a um, little bit of uncertainty with the showers over the weekend, Tony. And what sort of warnings? Mainly wind warnings at the moment? Yeah, for the coastal waters. We've pretty much got strong wind warning out for most of our coastal waters except Banks Strait and Franklin Sound, east of Flinders Island and the lower east coast. We also still have a strong wind warning current for our southwest lakes. And any likelihood of any frost warnings this week? Uh, the, uh, the winemakers out there are getting a little bit worried. Yeah, look, could be a little bit frosty on sort of Wednesday and Thursday morning. I'm not sure whether it's going to warrant a warning, but it is a bit of a watch this space. Okay. They have their warnings in place, I know, <laughs> when it gets a bit uh, bit frosty overnight, getting woken up in the middle of the night. Yeah, uh, coastal not waters. much fun. No, coastal waters and swell, what's happening there? Yeah, look, so generally today we've got those west to northwesterly 20 to 30 knots. We'll start to see those decreasing to sort of 15 to 25 knots um, about our eastern waters um, this afternoon and into the evening. Um, looking at those swells around the west and southwesterly around three and a half to four and a half metres. Um, in the north, westerly um, around 1 to 2 metres. In the east, we've got our northeast live around 1 to 2 metres, plus a southerly, mostly below a metre, but um, offshore in the south there around southwesterly 1 to 3 metres. And the Wave Rider boys, how are they going? Yeah, so Cape Sorrel sitting at around um, 4.2 metres with a maximum wave height of just under 6 metres and Mariah Island um, 1.8 metres with a maximum wave height just under 3 metres. Terrific. Thanks, Jenny. No worries. Thanks, Tony. See you later. Jenny Horvat from the Bureau with the latest information for you on the weather coming up this week. Now, coming up in just a moment, we introduce you to a champion dog, Earl from Fingal. He has won the Big Cobber Challenge. Is there anything decent to listen to? ABC News is Australia's number one digital news service and the nation's most trusted news outlet. Localised flash flooding. ABC News will always remain free and accessible to all Australians on the ABC website and news app. Rated yesterday by police. Providing independent and reliable news, information and analysis. For local news, listen to ABC Radio Hobart or visit the website. I am quite comfortable having the vaccine. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On the text line, Roger says uh, thank you to the big supermarket advertising. They want us to spend less. What a joke. Thank you, Roger. 0438922936. I don't think that's how it works for them anyway. For us, it does. 
the consumer at least. A working dog competition held across Australia and New Zealand has proven that dogs truly ring runs rings at least around their masters in distances covered in a day's work and that a Tasmanian dog is the best in the country. Earl the Kelpie lives near Fingal and this energetic working dog won the 2023 Cobber Challenge. He clocked up some 1,343 kilometres over 21 days, which is around about 70 k's a day. Claire Burberry caught up with Earl and his owner, Alex Johns, the livestock manager at Fingal Pastoral on Malahide Farm. Who's your name? Yeah, you're your Uh, I come around and I've seen it being done a few years and I had a couple, uh, one of my mates done it and then yeah we sent it on Facebook so we put it through it and away we went. So I went for three months and they picked your 21 days out of your three months and then yeah they went off your best and that was your score. And how did they track Earl? I had a GPS collar on his, uh, around his neck and it tracked it and you got it on a GPS and then yeah you just uploaded it and sent it through to the copper people and they done it. Were you able to track his progress? I had some rough idea, but yeah, they know, but we sort of have a rough idea of what he does. And I'm looking at your ute, and you've got Earl sitting on the back having a bit of a yawn, but you've got a few other dogs also on the back of the ute. What made you decide to enter Earl? Uh, Earl's just my, probably one of my better dogs. He's the youngest. Um, Yeah, he runs a fair few. He does quite a few bit of work for me, so yeah, that's why I picked him, young and strong. So (laughs) run bloody fast, so that's good good dog. What were you up to during the competition on the farm? Uh, we was just doing a bit of shear and um, had a new contractor come through and yeah he really put us under our paces. They're doing 2,000 sheep a day so yeah we had to get a bit going. So we're on the beautiful property of Malahide. It's in the Fingal Valley. It's quite a large property. Yeah yeah it's a big property with large scale stocks so yeah that's probably helped. So if Earl was to run from one end of the farm to the other how long would that take him? It'd oh, <laughs> take him a fair while. It's about a, a half hour drive each way up and down the farm, so it'd take Earl a fair while to get up there, I reckon. Can you tell us a little bit about Earl, where you found Earl and how you trained Earl? And I believe he has a little bit of a slight disadvantage physically. Yeah, I bred Earl, so I bred him out of my two best dogs, and unfortunately we don't have his mother anymore, but, yeah, he's real good. He, yeah... He's, um, he trained off my best dog, which is his father, so that's probably an advantage to him. And, yeah, he uh, poked himself in the eye with something that I'm unsure of, and now he has a white eye. But he's still able to work pretty hard. Yeah, he's able to work hard. He just bumps into stuff sometimes on that offside. So Hopefully just some nice fluffy sheep. What does the winner get from this competition? Uh, so they put a little surprise in there this year. So it's uh, you get 12 bags of dog food for the competition and then a, a following 12 once you won. And then you get a free grand cash prize, a nice big trophy, and this year they chucked in a sneaky, you get a little pup, little Kelpie pup. So They've given you a, a Kelpie pup as a prize? Yeah, they, uh, Matthew Johnson kindly donated it. He's through the Cobber people, he's an ambassador, so yeah, he kindly donated me a pup. And you were happy to welcome the pup? Oh yeah, very welcome. It's always good to have another one on board. I could see Earl kind of just miss a gate then. <laughs> he does that often, then he clips them and then, yeah, that's how I knew he'd done damage to the eye, like he couldn't see out of it. Yeah. You are the head yep. livestock manager here at Malahide. How do you find time to train all these dogs? Uh, most of the time it's sort of on the weekends when they're little pups, but it's mostly on the job. They're out every day, all day, so they just pick it up pretty quick. Can you tell us a bit about your agricultural career? Oh, I've done, so I've done my apprenticeship here, um, done three years of that, and then I went away, went down to a neighbouring property, Talagoram, for another six years, and then come back here for the last two. So, yeah, I've had a bit of, been around a bit. What got you into agriculture in the first place? Uh, just, uh, my grandfather had a little hobby farm up the back, and it's just sort of stemmed from there. Here! And I reckon he sounds pretty chuffed about having the champion dog, that's Fingal Pastoral Livestock Manager, Alex Johns, chatting there to Claire Burberry about his Kelpie dog, Earl. Now, coming up, we'll talk about the prospects for fertiliser prices. ABC Listen. What would it take to survive the unsurvivable? Water was pouring into my cabin and rising very, very fast. 
1973, a ship disappeared off the coast of Tasmania, launching one of the greatest survival stories Australia has ever seen. We just survived hell. You know, Malcolm had the nose who won the Caulfield Cup. <laughs> From the Dead, Season 2 of The Expanse podcast. Find it on the ABC Listen app. On air, online, on digital and the ABC Listen app. This is The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Australian farmers should expect fertiliser prices to flatline or even fall in the months ahead. And that's according to a new report from Rabobank. But that prediction comes with a heavy caveat that prices could go sharply in the other direction if the Israel-Hamas war spreads in the key fertiliser production zone of the Middle East and North Africa. Rabobank analyst Vitor Pistoia spoke with Angus Verley about the latest report. Well, what we have now for fertiliser prices is that uh, calm, quiet market. So many heavy buyers are out of the market. So we have winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, Brazil is seeding. Uh, Argentina has some problems with drought. So actually there is no one... Uh, putting uh, high bids in the market. So on that sense, everything's calm. When we see the forecast for the coming months on that price, we we might check uh, a slightly reduction in price. Uh, on US dollar terms, we can have up to 10% for nitrogen, up to 20% for phosphate. But then when we add the Aussie dollar that lost some ground in the past uh, weeks and months, that those numbers change to minus four or five to nitrogen and minus 15 for phosphate versus the price as of today. Okay, so you're forecasting a period of, of relative stability for fertilizer pricing then? Uh, stability with some potential for downside, so with the potential for lower prices, not a big potential, but a small one, of course. Assuming that the Israel and Hamas conflict will not disrupt any supply chain or will not put the crude oil price through the roof. Okay, let's talk about the Israel-Hamas conflicts. Can you just explain why that's significant and and how much of a contributor that region specifically and then the broader uh, Middle East, North Africa region is in fertilizer markets? Yes, so we have a few strong players on that region as a whole. So Israel by itself exports between 6 to 8% of global supply of phosphate and potash, so it's an important country. Egypt, it's a very heavy player in the nitrogen market and in the natural gas. And then when we go a little bit further, Jordan exports a little bit of phosphate. Uh, Algeria, Libya, they also export a lot of energy. And so when we put all those countries together, we have a substantial share of fertilizer, around 20 to 25% of global supply coming from that region. And besides the problem with the war, with people losing their lives, uh, losing their homes and so on, many politicians are concerned of the potential impacts in food inflation as we have experienced with the Black Sea War or with COVID in the past three years. Okay, so... First up, expecting stability or perhaps a discounted fertiliser price, but but with that caveat, the Israel-Hamas war caveat, that sounds like a pretty big caveat considering most expectations are that 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 war's uh, going to continue for for some time to come and also could, well, uh, I suppose, uh, broaden in the region. Yes, it's a big caveat, but... uh at the moment, the day we are speaking now, there is no ground offensive in that region. So as long as the conflict between Israel military forces and Hamas in the Gaza Strip remains just on that area, we are not expecting any upside on the fertilizer price. So that is that is also another caveat is like how vast the conflict can be, not how long it can be, as you said. And you said earlier that you're only forecasting based on current conditions, but if the, the Israel-Hamas conflict was to, to extend long-term and broaden, can you quantify what impact that would have on fertiliser pricing? Well, the impact, uh, it's very hard because uh, it really depends on how the conflict will move, like which countries will be involved in the conflict, uh, how big is going to be the loss in staff to do labour. So what can I say? What's the limit? Uh, the limit would be 
last year uh, on the Black Sea War, that would be like a, a good rule of thumb to check of how things can be. Of course, many conditions are not the same, but that can be the case to, to pick an example. And the impact was, was significant, wasn't it? Ah, yes, it was. Like, uh, I really reached 13, 1400 here in the country dollars per ton. So very heavy cost to farming. But as I said before, grain oil seeds also reply to that extent. So we have to see how the two uh, groups of products will move. Robert Bank analyst Vito Pistoia speaking with Angus Verley about the predicted price of fertilizer with what's going on around the world. Around a third of grapes crushed in Australia are either Shiraz or Cabernet Sauvignon. But with those varieties in oversupply, how are growers responding? What are they doing? In Australia's biggest wine-producing state, grafting and planting of lighter reds and whites is on the rise. Riverland grape grower Jim Marquius decided to change up to 20% of his vineyard in Renmark. He's told Eliza Burlage which varieties he'd decided to graft. Santorinico, which is a Greek white variety from Greece. We also have Muscaton, Alberino, Vermentino, Montepulciano and Saparavi, which is the Georgian one. So all these varieties are suited to Mediterranean warm climates that we come from. So last year what we did, we chopped the top of the vines off and then it was just basically the trunk left and then a grafter came in and grafted the new buds onto the trunk and then it started growing from there and then we trained it up to the wire. So these vines will be about 80% into production this year so we'll get a decent crop off them and then the following vintage will be 100% cropping level so we've theoretically only missed out on one vintage. How did you decide which varietals would suit the region and, and what you're trying to do? So the majority of these varieties that we're putting in come from Mediterranean countries. So we have a dry climate here in the Riverland. It's sun-drenched. We get about 220 mils of rain per year. We have long, hot summers. So these indigenous varieties to those Mediterranean countries of Greece, Spain, Italy will be very well suited to our climate here in the Riverland. Your family is Greek and, and your mother came over from Greece. Is, is there a lot of excitement from the family and, and I guess the Greek community about hearing some of these varietals making a splash in Australia's wine industry? Yeah, it's definitely exciting. We're finally getting to grow some varieties from our heritage, which is, which is a great talking point, but it's also very interesting to see these indigenous varieties from Greece as well. And what the great experience is, is that it gives a better experience of wines that can be grown in our region and in Australia in general. So it's all about having fun with wine and eating good food and socialising with your friends, and that's what it's all about. Riverland grape grower Jim Marquias speaking with Eliza Berlage. And it's not just the Riverland which is looking to diversify. Susie Harris and her family have traditionally focused on Shiraz, Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay at their Hyenham Vineyard in the southeast. But after observing recent consumer trends, she and the family made the decision to start grafting across some of their grapes. We are changing some of that Cabernet over to Pinot Noir. We just find that consumers are drinking a lot more lighter reds and so we wanted to be able to uh, tap into that market. So we, we will keep some Cabernet and Shiraz uh, and the Chardonnay and then we will you know, we'll have some Pinot as well. So you think that's a long-term trend that's going to be sticking around to make that change worthwhile? Yes, I certainly would be reluctant to jump on any great variety trend that came along but I do think that Pinot is a, a classic variety and it's here to stay so yeah so we, we believe that that will be drunk uh, widely into the future. And how have you been finding the process? Is this something you've had to do before? We have done some grafting before. It is quite involved and it's quite risky, but it is cheaper than pulling out vines. And so it's, it, it's, you get a crop, you miss one year of production and then get a crop the following year rather than if you pull vines out and, re, and put in new plants you, it takes about three years so there's a benefit there but it's, it's, a, it's a risky thing to do uh, in that all the grafts don't always take so yeah so we just, we've decided to go down that route but I can understand that people aren't always keen to do that. Heinem wine grape grower Susie Harris so is the risk and the expense of grafting across your grapes really worth it? 
Associate Professor Steve Goodman from the University of Adelaide is both a wine production and wine marketing expert. He told me it likely is. I asked him how often wine trends shift. Sauvignon Blanc really over the last 20 years has been the only one big trend that's taken on big market share. But what we're seeing, if you put all of the other alternative varieties together, they together have become a big segment of the market, which has become attractive. We're starting to see consumers wanting to explore. It is quite a big expense for growers to graft over or plant new vineyards completely. How cyclical in nature are wine trends? Is there a chance that in a few years people will be back to Shiraz or is this more of a case that it really is expanding with the variety people are wanting to drink and and you'll expect it to stay that way? There's probably two sides to that coin. big problem over the last 12, 18 months has been the China tariff on, on Australian wine. That's really hurt South Australia because a lot of our traditional, our Shirazes, our Cabernets, go to China. So that, that has really led to a surplus. The second segment is that we've also seen a move towards lighter style wines, wines that sit nicely next to food rather than completely dominate. So we've seen growth in things like Pinot Noir. We've seen growth in things like Cabernet Franc and other varieties, that typical big Barossa, Shiraz, they aren't that big McLaren Vale Grenache, but they're doing that nice little dance that sits alongside food and gives consumers something more to remember because they tried something different. So put that in as well, you're seeing a shift in the market where there is now quite a demand for lighter style varieties. And some of those more niche varieties, are they mostly consumed within the country or is it difficult to export those types of varieties? It's very hard for smaller exporters, for the niche growers that are growing those alternative varieties, it's a lot harder for them to export. So exporting something like Shiraz or Cabernet to known markets, it's still very complicated but is an easier path to access. If there's smaller amounts being made, there isn't as much that's also needed to be exported. So they can satisfy a local market. So there's opportunities for exporters to do something different into those markets, but it's then the difficulty of, A, they're competing against the local varietals, So it's a smaller percentage of the market that's willing to try varieties more associated with the old world that come from the new world. So if you were going to start a vineyard, what mix of grapes would you be planting? Purely from a personal point of view, knowing how saturated the market is with all the larger varieties, if I was doing something, it would be on a smaller scale. I would be doing non-traditional varieties. I would be looking at the Fermentinos, the Nero Davlers, the Cab Franc, because it would enable me to give something a little bit different to the marketplace. That's Associate Professor Steve Goodman from the University of Adelaide ending that report from Elsie Adamo and Eliza Burlage about all the different types of varieties of grapes that are being grafted onto grapevines on a daily basis as we speak on the mainland, getting rid of Shiraz and Cab Sav. Catch you after midday tomorrow.